Okay, uh, for several weeks now we've been talking about uh, life on mission, and uh, we keep building. First week we talked about the fact that the first thing that we have to do is we have to connect uh, with people. We have to establish a relationship. Last week we talked about the fact that the next level is that we learn to serve them uh, and to help meet their needs. And today we're going to talk about sharing. John chapter 20, verse 21, again Jesus said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now he's talking to the twelve here, uh, but we know from reading other scripture in the Great Commission, for instance, uh, he gave the disciples, the apostles, the responsibility to teach others the very things he had taught them, which include uh, this statement. And so in that way, the church was to perpetuate itself until the end of time. And so this becomes a part of our commission uh, today as well. So Jesus is sending us into the world to do what? Uh, what is our mission in this world? That's what we want to determine. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, I don't care about my own life. The most important thing is that I complete my mission, the work that the Lord Jesus gave me to tell people the good news about God's grace. In recent years, <clears throat> people in the church have been challenged to go into the world witnessing for Jesus. Now, much emphasis has been placed on witnessing to lost people. And uh, last week, when I mentioned the fact that um, there's a difference in witnessing and being a witness, uh, you know, one is active, the other is passive, um, and that primarily... In the church, Christians are to uh, passively be Christians, uh, setting an example and sharing their faith with other people. And we've looked at it as something that we have to go out and do. And so we have to learn all this about the Bible. We have to know everything about the Bible. So when anybody asks us a question, we're able to answer their question. And that's not the case um, as a matter of fact, we're much better off uh, if we can share what uh, we have experienced with them. It's real easy for, for you to say, well, this is what Jesus did uh, in, in my life. Um, and, and I want you to understand this witnessing thing. O only the apostles, only the people that were with Jesus could actually be witnesses uh, if you were to go into court today and, uh, and you were to witness about Jesus, you would start quoting passages and you would say this about Jesus and you'd start quoting about. But in a court of law, that's hearsay. You know, it, it, you're, the next, you're the next generation. Um, you know, you've heard that, you've read that, but you don't know it personally because you didn't experience it personally. And so we're all at that disadvantage uh, 2,000 years removed uh, from the actual events that took place uh, during Jesus' ministry. Um, and so our witness or our testimony then should be based on our experiences with Jesus 
and what he has done in our lives uh, in the various ways that we have been changed because of him. Now, Jesus wants us to be his witnesses in this world. And this is the next step um, as we talk about our life on mission. Okay, the first was connect, the second was serve, and this one is to share. When you're on this mission, in fact, you are changing the world. People who are, you're going to think this odd, but I'm going to use the expression tattooed by Jesus are those who are looking at their lives as mission work, regardless of where they live, or if they are a pastor-type person, such as myself. It's not necessary that we all be that. We've all had experiences, and we can, we can share that. Um, so in this, I wouldn't advise everybody to go out and get a tattoo. You can do that if you want to. That's okay. That's your prerogative. But I do encourage everybody to be tattooed by Jesus. Okay? Take him onto your life. Live for him from this day forward. Okay, a witness tells what he or she has seen or relates an experience. Uh, You can only witness what you have seen. Francis of Assisi said, be always ready to give an answer, and if necessary, use words. You are the best witness of what God has done in your life. You're the best. Somebody else can see the change, and they can talk about that change, but you are most effective telling how God has changed uh, your life, what God has done in your life. What is a witness? A witness is just simply somebody who tells what they have seen. If you were in, in, in court, it would be like, well, I saw this, and then I saw that, and then this is what happened. Uh, as a result of what I saw. A witness tells what happened to them. So you see, you are the expert on your life. Nobody can be a better witness on your life than you. You are the authority on your life. All right, now some people get confused um, the difference between a witness and a prophet. A lot of people think, Okay, God's called me to be a prophet uh, in the world. And certainly he has called people to do that. But let me explain the difference. The responsibility of a witness is to share his personal story with unbelievers. Now, when you get down to what Jesus told the 12, and then what he told them again in uh, uh, the Great Commission to go into all the world, His reason behind this was for them to share his good news with people who do not yet believe in Jesus. So it's a a story, relating your story, your personal story with unbelievers. And so the witnesses that we're talking about, that's that's you. You are uh, to be those witnesses. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Here's what Jesus said just before he went into heaven, ascended into heaven, left the earth. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. He's talking to the 12. He's out and he's going to 
disappear here momentarily. Um, but you will, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. And he outlines their wit where they're going to witness in Jerusalem <clears throat> and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But let me say, prophets, on the other hand, as opposed to witnesses, were almost exclusively called to speak to God's people when things broke down, things spiritually broke down in the lives of his people. Uh, God, you'll remember, raised up prophet after prophet in the Old Testament because Israel, you know, was on on this kind of a, a line. Uh, they'd get close to God, then they'd sin and fall off, and then God would punish them, they'd come back, they'd get close to God. And so he always raised a prophet to bring them back to him. Now, I, I want to read for our text today, uh, John chapter 9, beginning with verse 4. This is a long passage, and I apologize that it is so long. It's on, it will be on the screen, so you can follow along either on the screen or on your outline. I, I debated on whether to, to tell this in my words or read it, and I decided it's just it's so good I want to read the whole thing. John chapter 9, beginning with verse 4. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Now, these are the words of Jesus. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, is it this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been healed, or who had been, had been blind, now was healed. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Now, Sabbath was Saturday. It was the day of worship uh, in the Old Testament for the Jews. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. You see, one of the things about the Sabbath day is you weren't supposed to do any work on the Sabbath day. So they're accusing Jesus of doing work, therefore not observing the Sabbath. But others ask, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? 
Good question. So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can that now he can see. We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to be cut off from worship. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Now, I'm going to make a statement that may upset some of you, but it's true. The United States of America is not a Christian nation. Now, we claim that, we like to claim that, everybody, at least who's Christian, likes to claim that, but it simply is not true. And I, know, I noticed the responses of people, you see, I can see, I can notice your response by the expression on your face when I say certain things. Uh, when I mentioned last week that the United States is the third or fourth largest mission field in the world, Uh, There were people who didn't believe that. Well, I did further research. It is number three. Number three. Third largest mission field in the world. From the Navigators, which is a Christian organization, from their website, an article that they've included there, given a link to, Domestic Missionaries Needed, says... According to George Barna, now you've heard me mention George Barna before. He, he does a lot of research. He's a statistician. And uh, so, you know, he spouts out, probably talks in his sleep, statistics of Christians and churches and people uh, in, in America. Here's what George Barna said. With its 195 million unchurched people. How many unchurched people? There are in America. America has become the new mission field. America has more unchurched people than in the entire population of all but 11 of the world's 194 nations. And let that sink in. That's pretty significant. According to the book Lost in America, written by Tom Clegg and Warren Bird. 
the unchurched population in the United States is so extensive that were it a nation, now, hold on to your seat, it would be the fifth largest nation on earth. Just take out the non-Christians of America. It would be the fifth largest country in the world. Now, we can all sit around and we can argue who needs Jesus more, people locally or people overseas. And, um, you know, there's, there, there's a debate. There's a debate among Christians and the churches uh, over this. Uh, but it's like, it would be like sitting on the deck of the Titanic debating which end of the ship's going to go down first. Now, if you watch the movie, you may know the answer to that. But when it happened, before it happened, the people didn't know which end was going to go down first. Um, in no way do I believe that global missions should take a back seat. So, in other words, I'm saying I'm not in favor of saying we need to do this as a priority over that. I think the whole issue needs to be a priority. People who do not need, know Jesus as Lord and Savior, they need, to, they need to hear the story. They need to have the opportunity. So it needs to be done uh, universally. Uh, a year or so ago, I had a guy visit the church. Um, he, he, he was a Christian from a Christian background, but um, certainly didn't have a, a very enlightened understanding of some things. Anyway, he was checking us out as a church. And so... He made the statement going out the door, well, if I choose to come to church here, um, I'll be glad to support you know, local missions, things that you do in the community. But he said, don't you ever expect me to give any money uh, to go overseas. And I, he, I, he caught me off guard. You know, I'm, I'm at the door greeting people as they go out. And... Uh, you know, he hits me with this. So I, did, I didn't respond. I thought, okay, if he comes back, I'll have an opportunity to talk to him about the issue. Uh, but that, that's a terrible attitude. I mean, how, how, can you feel, how can you feel that way? Jesus didn't make a distinction. Uh, in the Great Commission, he told the disciples to go into all the world. And the passage that we read they were to start in Jerusalem, which is where they were. They were to move into Judea and Samaria, the outer region, and then they were to go to the uttermost parts of the world. That's what God expects. Now, since the United States of America is predominantly not Christian, we need to we need witnesses. Lots of witnesses. And that's who you are. Or let me say, that's who you're supposed to be. That's what God wants. We don't need prophets. However, we have an abundance of prophets running around America, uh, crying out, America needs to repent. When the majority of people in the United States aren't Christians, so repent from what? Our citizens need witnesses to help bring them to Jesus. And just because we say the 
Pledge of Allegiance, and the Constitution mentions the fact that we are under God does not make us a Christian nation. Now, we'd like for it to be one, and it was one at one time. But we lost that status. We started out that way, but the United States is a democratic society. You know what that means? It means the majority rules. So if the majority are not Christians, and the majority do not want to be Christians, then we're not going to be a Christian nation until the majority of our citizens and leaders choose to be Christian. You have the responsibility of witnessing your experiences in Jesus, and those experiences become your gifts to be able to witness, not to tell people how to live. Now, we like to do that. We like to look at other people and criticize their lives, criticize how they're living. But that's not what God wants us to do. That's, that's, not our, that's not our role. That's not our responsibility. You know, I've been called to be a pastor, and so that includes the responsibility of serving as a prophet to tell people how to live. So I, basically, I do that for you every week. You know, I talk about uh, things that we need to improve, things that we need to do that we're not doing. Uh, the blind man in Luke chapter 9, he did not answer any questions that he did not have the answer to. I don't know if you noticed that or not. They asked him, the Pharisees asked him some questions that he didn't know the answer to. And so he didn't try to answer it. And so a lot of people, Christians, put themselves in a position where uh, they're asked questions that they don't know the answer to. And that makes them uncomfortable. Don't put yourself in that situation. Don't confront people about their behavior or about some political issue or something. Talk to them about your life in Christ and what Jesus has done for you. So if you do that, like the blind, former blind man, then you, know, you can witness and you don't have to enter into the gay marriage debate, or try to explain why Christians believe in creation uh, rather than evolution, and you don't have to apologize for televangelists with bad, puffy hairstyles. Just leave those alone. The blind man's response was, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. You see, that statement, that true statement, that personal experience said more than him trying to convince the Pharisees who Jesus was. He didn't really know, but he told them what he did know. You can confirm only what you know and what you have experienced. Now, your field of work includes, I'm going to say the same that Jesus said to the apostles. He said, you know, start out in Jerusalem. This was in Acts 1.8. Jerusalem is your immediate area. If you live in Winchester, uh, it would be Winchester. If you live in Cave and Ridge, Cave and Ridge. If you live in, in uh, uh, Martinsburg or Inwood or wherever in the area, Berryville, Stephen City, Middletown, that's your Jerusalem, where you live. And then 
Judea and Samaria is your outer area of influence, and these are people that you don't come into contact every, with every day, but that you know uh, because you've had contact, and, and you know them well enough that you can be a witness. And the ends of the earth, that's places where uh, you'll have to support with money or get on a plane. Most of, us choose, most of us choose to support with money rather than get on a plane. Okay, but here's the fact. You are the expert when it comes to your story. And here's the thing. Friends don't keep other friends away from good news. If you find a good deal, you're going to tell your friends about it. If you find out where gas is cheaper, you're going to tell them, hey, this station has gas for $1.75 a gallon. Actually, I saw $1.79 Wednesday at Southern Virginia. <laughs> Just a word of advice. It wouldn't pay you to drive to uh, South Boston, Virginia to get $1.79 gas. But anyway, you, you know what I'm saying. If we see a good deal, we see something that we know our friend would be interested in, we don't withhold that information because they're our friend. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is from the message. But you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work. Now, he's not talking to pastors, to preachers, to church leaders. He's talking to people in general. He said, you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work. You see, there was an office of priest in the Old Testament, but now there's the priesthood of all believers. So we all have direct access to God. You can pray to God. You don't have to go through a human being anymore. Chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you. There it is. You are to tell your experiences, and your experiences will make and leave an impression on other people. The most effective way to let other people know about the great things that God can do in their lives is to tell the story of what God has done in your life. It makes a difference. People want to hear your story, but they don't want to hear your story. Maybe you, don't, maybe you don't know what I was getting at. They want to hear the two to three minute version, not the two to three hour version, which sometimes you know, people get hung up in, in that. So the Bible pictures kind of a courtroom scene. Now, God doesn't ask us to be his attorney arguing his case. He doesn't ask us to be the judge, judging other people. He says, I want you to be my witness. Okay, once again, what does a witness do? A witness says, here's what I've seen, here's what I've heard. A witness tells the story of what God has done through their life for other people. And the reality is most of us can think of many different stories of what God has done in our lives. But what you need to do 
is you need to think about those and think about what you're going to tell other people and, and you know, just kind of determine that ahead of time in your mind so that it becomes a two to three minute thing and not a two to three hour issue. Okay, how do you tell your story? Okay, how to tell your story. Now, when you're talking to your uh, people that you've connected with, okay, your friends, you have a relationship with, uh, you listen for problems that may be similar to problems that you've had uh, that Jesus has helped you with so you can say, look, Jesus has helped me with that. Maybe he can help you too. You can also relate to some current event, you know, something that's going on, something around us, um, something in the community or, or something in the nation, something that that people are struggling with, something you see in a newspaper or on TV, like the anniversary today of 9-11. You know, I mean, this, this was a significant day. On 9-11-2001, we saw evil at its worst. But we saw godliness at its best through the first responders and all the people that reached out to try to help. So you can talk about instances like that. In Psalm 66, 16, which is the verse I read in the beginning, all of you who fear God, come and listen. I will tell you what he, has, what he has done for me. So as the psalmist, I want you to do the same thing. I'd like for you to do the same thing. I think God expects you to do the same thing. Tell people what he has done for you. Now one of the things, I was with uh, preacher friends, this was some years ago, in a restaurant, I'd never seen this done, never thought of it myself, but uh, we were at a table, a bunch of us, and so uh, my friend from Baltimore says to the waitress, hey, you know, we're a bunch of preachers. I thought maybe she'd run, you know, and get another waitress for that table, but, uh, but she didn't, and, and he said, um, you know, we're going to pray and thank God for our food. Is there anything that we could pray for pray about for you. And he didn't say, no, I don't need prayer. Actually, 90% of people will accept your invitation to pray for them. 90%. Because there's, there's a full 90% of people in America who believe in God. And it may not be the God of the Bible, but they believe in God. And when you talk about prayer... You talk about relying on, on the, a power greater than us. Yeah, they'll take it. You know, yes, pray, pray for me. Their attitude is, hey, it hurt. This girl seemed really interested and thankful that we would be willing to pray for uh, her needs. She had, she had several issues. One was family relationships, and one was her job. She was trying to get another a better job, and that sort of thing. Isaiah 52, verse 7. Isaiah writes, How beautiful is the person who comes over the mountains to bring good news, who announces peace and brings good news, who announces salvation and says to Jerusalem, Your God is king. I want to share with you a story from a missionary, and I, I'm going to quote him because I want you to hear his words. A Christian missionary who was serving in India, it's 1967, 
he said, tuberculosis forced me into a sanitarium for several months. I did not speak the language. But I tried to give Christian literature written in their language to the patients, doctors, and nurses. Everyone politely refused. The first few nights I woke up around 2 a.m. coughing. One morning during my coughing spell, I noticed one of the older and sicker patients across the aisle uh, trying to get out of bed. He would sit on the edge of the bed and try to stand, but finally fell back into his bed exhausted. I heard him crying softly. Next morning, I realized what the man had been trying to do. He'd been trying to get up and walk to the bathroom. The stench in our ward was awful. Other patients yelled insults at him. Angry nurses threw him from side to side of his bed as they cleaned up the mess. The old man curled into a ball and wept. The next night, I again woke up coughing. I noticed the man across the aisle sit up and again try to stand. I got out of bed and went over to him, smiled, put my arms around him, picked him up. He was very light due to his extreme old age and advanced TV. I carried him to the washroom, which was just a filthy small room with a hole in the floor. After he finished, I picked him up, carried him back to his bed. As I laid him down, he kissed me on the cheek, smiled, and said something I couldn't understand. The next morning, another patient woke me and handed me a steaming cup of tea. He motioned with his hands that he wanted a tract. Other patients also wanted booklets I had tried to distribute before. Throughout the day, nurses, interns, and doctors asked for literature. Weeks later, a local evangelist who spoke the language visited me, and as he talked to others discovered that several had decided they wanted to accept Jesus. Now, our simple acts of service, sharing our experiences, can preach the love of Christ far more effectively than the most eloquent of words. If you recall, on one occasion, um, a demon-possessed man was set free from his possession by Jesus. The man begged Jesus to go along with him, and Jesus refused. And here's what Jesus said. He said, go home to your family and friends. The man did it. God didn't take you home when you were converted because you still have work to do. You have a job to do. And so my challenge is for you to do it. Today we're going to sing our song of decision. You have the opportunity uh, to make a decision to accept Christ, see Craig on the way out. Um, He'll be glad to talk with you and set up a time for us to get together and talk and meet. And if you want to become a member of the church, same thing, stop by at the link. If you're struggling with any issue and you feel like you need prayer and you'd like for us to pray with you, we'll be glad to do that. Let's stand and sing, please. Thank you.